Don't touch that remote. You're tuning into Crazy Currency with Jack Jammer. Welcome back, folks. It's time to get Jack Jammed. Grab your snacks, because chips are hot right now. We're looking at a record year for consolidation in the microchip sector. AMD and NVIDIA are making major acquisitions. Meanwhile, Apple is expected to make a huge jump into 5G with the new iPhone, kickstarting the 5G revolution into high gear. And you know what that means. Better connection, faster speeds, and importantly, even more microchips in everything. Think about it. The only thing that won't have a chip inside it is your brain. And Elon Musk is going to fix that one. Blue chips, microchips, more like massive chips. Bye, bye, bye. Oh, baby. That's the Jack Jam of the day. Oh, there it is. Stay tuned. After the break, we've got an interview with the philosopher king of Silicon Valley, Alex Karp. You won't want to miss this one. All aboard! Hello friends and enemies, it's episode 11 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, here with Ed and producer Jeremy as always. Uh, And before we get rolling into our topic for this week's episode, I want to just give a little reminder for for a proposition uh, coming up next month, Proposition 22 in California. Uh, something really important, you know, even if you're not in California, this is, I, I feel like this is going to be a precedent setting, uh, you know, vote, right? So, and, and bringing it up in part because we're also seeing that now, you know, we've got a massive rollout of anti-Prop 22 propaganda um, coming in. You know, just before we started recording, I saw um, Vanessa Bain, uh, who's on Twitter as a at hashtag Molotov, um, who's a, just a really great activist who's been really active uh, in, in, in this kind of in this fight. Um, but she tweeted out that Instacart is forcing its, you know, do, forcing its workers to do uncompensated work, um, distributing Prop 22 propaganda, you know, forcing them to put these like stickers and inserts inside of customers' orders um, and giving them no choice but to do so. So, I mean, th- this is this is just egregious shit. I mean, right, Ed? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, and um, there's a huge question um, I don't think has been satisfactorily answered about whether any of this is legal in the first place. I mean, these mailers being, you have to, as Vanessa pointed out, you know, um, Instacart itself was saying that drivers, couriers are not allowed to insert anything into customers' bags and uh, because it was a safety risk, especially during a pandemic. And now you say, yeah. now fuck the safety, right? It's about the survival of our company um, and our exploitative business model. Um, 
I mean, just uh, just uh, at near the end of this week, the, <clears throat> the past week, you saw that um, Uber Lyft and uh, the Yes on Proposition 22 campaign had sent out mailers, fake mailers, uh, where they pretended to be uh, a Bernie uh, campaign affiliate with um, Feel the Burn, Progressive Voter Guides, Council on um, Concerned uh, uh, Latina Women or uh, Women of Color Voters. I mean, just like, just, just flagrantly fraudulent shit that probably will be allowed in one way or another because they, in postscript, small font to get your glasses out sort of text, say that this is paid for by the Yes on Proposition 22 campaign. So, you know, these companies, you have to wonder whether this is desperation because of how maybe their own polling has shown that uh, they're standing to lose the proposition. And in California, propositions have a history of losing if because people will vote no if this shit is too confusing. Um, or whether it's because they just do not care. And this is going to open up a new age of uh, flagrant rule-breaking and violations mm-hmm. of basic laws and, and, and rules. Mm. Yeah, because, I mean, this is, this is so, such blatant and appalling electioneering, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, this, is such, this is beyond astroturfing a movement. This isn't just, you know, the Kochs funding the Tea Party or whatever and kind of, you know, getting get these movements supposedly started from the grassroots, but they're mm-hmm. all just paid activists. Paid actors, mm-hmm. <laughs> paid organizers, mm-hmm. and so on. I mean, this this is really about coercively enrolling uh, workers and employers, or employees rather, not even employees, right? Ind- quote unquote independent contractors into your uh, election propaganda machine. I mean, it, it's it's mm-hmm. it's like the only thing that would go beyond this is making uber drivers or instacart shoppers or whatever you know click a pledge that they're gonna vote yes on which they have proposition 22 (laughs) which they have right (laughs) Right. which they make them do (laughs) so and you know i think also you know um most of the drivers are on facebook or other platforms whatsapp which is owned by facebook and um and other forums to do uh driver-to-driver communications and organizing but and twitter ends up being the site where a lot of the journalists a lot of the activists a lot of the professors are communicating about this sort of stuff and i mean like things have gotten so bad to this point where you know the ceo of uber has locked his account because of the constant uh questions that people are asking about it i mean it's not like uber in of itself uber's pr team is um like every other tech um company and giant well adept at not answering your question and misdirecting you uh but i do think that there's an awareness i think among uh critics commentators pundits of the basic sort of uh disregard for the rule of law and questionable corruption but the real question is whether or not that's going to bleed through to the public because you know uber has nearly 200 million dollars that it's gotten from itself and it's you know uh, comrades to uh, to donate into advertisements, misleading ads, right? And the only thing that's really going to combat that is if uh, journalists and commentators and activists uh, speak loudly and forcefully about how this is all bullshit. And I think um, what happens next is also going to be a good test 
with uh, whether or not we have, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jeremy said, you know, what's up with all the rich old men not answering uh, direct questions? And it, you know, it helps. They don't have to answer the questions, and and especially now it's a strategy that's worked for so long. Like this is a test not only about whether or not we have we have regulations that are going to be able to contain Uber, but also if we've learned anything from the past ten years. Because in all honesty. I think the question and the way that every person writing about this, thinking about this, talking about this should be is like, just do not believe anything that these companies say up front. I mean, they've been lying for 10 years. Why are they suddenly going to tell the truth on Proposition 22? Why are they suddenly going to be honest and forthright with us when, you know, I think like one of the biggest examples for me is like when I was writing a story about uh, Uber's uh, lockout program, I sent a long list of questions to Uber and to Lyft about why they were locking drivers out of New York City. And instead of answering any of the questions that I had, the day that I wrote the story, they shut down the program. So, you know, like they don't care. They don't fucking care at all. They have such little regard for the drivers that they will just move them around and the programs that contain them as pawn pieces. And people need to be skeptical of this propaganda, any sort of propaganda, all the time, always, and to get the audience and and listeners and viewers and, and readers to like understand these are like lying companies. These are companies that if we had basic standards would be called corrupt and duplicitous. Yeah. yeah, at no point have their interests changed or flipped. At no point have their values changed or flipped. Like you saying, I mean, the, you know, they, they've been lying for 10 years and they ain't going to stop now. And uh, in, in, importantly, you know, while they're, while this kind of propaganda push and these egregious actions might be show, you know, might reveal that their own internal polling shows that they're, you know, on the back foot, that they might lose, we need to act um, and importantly, people in California need to act as if it's going to win, as if it's going to be uh, a hard battle. Um, don't get complacent, right? Because you you gotta go out there. You gotta vote no on on Prop Twenty Two. You've you've but but that's just the start. As all these things are always the start, um, because this is a trial balloon, right? This is just an important trial balloon for these platforms. They're hoping to set precedent, but if they don't work, if it doesn't work out now, um, they'll regroup, re-strategize, and come back somewhere else. You know, right. ready to fight a different battle. In so, fact, I mean, if they the, lose this battle the Supreme Court is still open to them. And the Supreme Court is... Uh, a highly progressive institution <laughs> in this country, which I put nothing but 100% of my faith into. Right. If uh, if they're able to get it to the Supreme Court, I think we're fucked. So I think it's important to kill it with the proposition. If the proposition kills it, I think the legal case is kind of moot because the legal case is about whether or not they need to be uh, forced to adhere to it immediately. And... Maybe worst case scenario, yes, uh, no on proposition to 22 passes. Legal case allows them some time to figure out a way to structure their business afterwards, and we don't go to the Supreme Court. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and Jeremy just you know put in the chat as well, you know, maybe Musk will just move his HQ to Texas, like I think he's you know he's intimated he wants to do. Uh, and, and that's also something interesting that might come out of this. Because we also see like Palantir, you know, friend of the show, darling of the show, Palantir, uh, you know, they're moving to Denver, um, to Colorado, uh, you know, so you might see this like weird exodus from Silicon Valley if, if, these, if these companies feel like 
uh, California has become hostile to to their interest, which is also just straight bullshit, right? <laughs> I mean, they 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 have so much power at every level of in California's you know local government, state government, right? They have so much power. Um, it also just shows how much of like big like crybabies they are too. That like if they don't get their way once, it's the end of the world as we know. Win or lose. Um... Whatever happens on November third for Proposition, you know, twenty-two as well as on the general election, um, we have a lot of avenues open to us. If uh, Proposition twenty-two passes with a yes vote, um, there are still ways to intervene in new cities outside of California that still puts pressure on them, and California will have a much more narrow path to overcoming it, but it's still feasible. But if there's a no vote, if there's a no vote, we have a lot more room to really not... Uh, I want to kill the... I would like to kill the company, right? But we can't kill the company because it's made hundreds of thousands of people, millions, dependent on it. But we can do a lot of things to it to take it over, to restructure and reformulate its logic that makes it um, not a private... A vehicle for capital accumulation, but a public asset for the, um, you know social for design for social planning. Um, frankly, for social engineer, social planning, I guess social engineer guys is not the is not the best way to term it, right? But figuring <laughs> out how to really plan the way people move around in cities that should be something that we all get to decide to do, not like a company because it wants to make profits someday. Yeah, we uh, we we gotta reclaim planned economy. Yeah, <laughs> we got we gotta reclaim that from all the all the all the ghouls out there that have you know tarnished the good name of a planned economy. Because let me tell you, and this might segue us into our topic, we do have a planned economy. Right. We have a highly planned economy. Yeah. But who's making the plans? Yeah. It ain't the people. No, right? yeah. it, it's not even the government. I think you. It's. It is really important to note that, like, you know, after World War II, after the United States won World War II, it planned very intensely and systematically what each region of the world was going to do and, like, what industries would be uh, elevated and what monetary systems are going to be adopted. That is a planned economy in grand and in grandeur and scale that the Soviet Union could not. Even the Soviet Union at the peak of its planning plans, right, when it was talking about greening the Middle East and, and getting rid of the desert and blooming it or terraforming it, you know, or going to the moon and trying to create uh, colonies there to have, you know, uh, and, and to create infrastructure to have quick travel between there and other points of the Earth or draining the fucking Mediterranean Valley Basin. All of these are crazy planning projects that do not compare in the scale with like what our empire has been able to do over the past 60 years but we don't call it a planned economy because uh it's the market right it's 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 entrepreneurial initiative beyond the actions of the state there's also a lot of plannedness in the plannedness in the economy uh and in technology in all of these things that are uh, that legislate the way that we live, right? I always think about Langdon Winners, um, who's, you know, political theorist, philosopher of technology, who's influenced my work a lot. 
you know, he talks about technology as legislation, and he doesn't mean that in some metaphorical sense, um, in the terms of like, oh, like, you know, we need to reform it, we need to tweak it. I mean, yes, we need to do that. But he means legislation in like a, 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 more, a more straightforward sense in that, like, you know, technology and these, these socio-technical systems legislate our life they give structure to society Mm -hmm. they outline what kind of worlds we have what kind of worlds we can't have right they foreclose and open up possibilities um and so we need to think about it as legislation because beyond the kind of propaganda and lobbying aspects right uh uh, you know silicon valley is a major lobbyist right Mm -hmm. like uh, you know these these companies funnel so much money into Washington, D.C., but also into state elections, as we're seeing into local uh, elections, Mm -hmm. you know, as we're seeing um, even with like, uh, you know, Google announcing that they're going to, you know, they're proposing to build a new campus in in downtown San Jose, which is just a straight fucking copy and paste of Sidewalk Toronto, but they're doing (laughs) it in their home turf Mm -hmm. because they have power in San Jose that they don't have in Toronto, for example. So they'll be able to get away with it, right? I'm, I'm, I'm like so certain that uh, you know, you shut down Sidewalk Toronto in one place, and it's just going to pop up uh, in San Jose. You know, they're they're they're, they're going to scrawl out the the Toronto on the plans and just write San Jose underneath mm-hmm. it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so you see this you see this massive lobbying in in these like legislative spheres, uh, but there's also all these like there's these shadow battles going on too, um, and this is what we what we're really going to get into today. Uh, you know, the, the, these what, you know, Keller Easternly, uh, Easternly um, has this really great book that she calls uh, called Extra Statecraft, uh, The Power of Infrastructure Space. And I like this term that she uses, extra statecraft, because the book is all about um, the, these these kind of conflicts and these actions and these power moves that happen outside of normal realm normal realms of statecraft the normal realms of of what we think of as the state doing and and this you know the kind of planned things that you were talking about at like post-war planning you know the state was really involved in that and obviously the state still does a lot of that but there's all these aspects um that happen outside of the state but take the form of statecraft uh and in particular uh today we're we're, we're gonna get into this like this this kind of raging war going on behind the scenes around technological standards right you know and i think with um with extra straight uh, statecraft you know the introduction you know for me and for maybe anyone who's listening you know i like i feel like i have a pretty good um grasp or interest in tech um issues uh but the standards issue um, or standards in of themselves are something that, you know, as we talked about, are not looked at closely because, you know, as you said, it's uh, before it comes across as incredibly bureaucratic. Right. But when you hear standards, you need to think I think it's probably better for someone to immediately think about standardizing. Right. And the idea that the idea behind a standard is to is to create some sort of consensus around how things operate. But 
the consensus about how things operate is not really concerned with like the best way to operate, right? Because you know, as Langton Weiner t tells us all the time, and as we should know by now, like the all of these things, techniques, technical systems, are political systems, are extensions of political systems, right? And often the ways in which consensus for technical systems is arrived at is not what is the best optimal efficient system but what is the one that satisfies the interest of actors who are already present or who are trying to get present at other people's expenses right and this extra statecraft book had a section in the introduction where it talks about infrastructure right and you know typically when you think about infrastructure you think about physical things you think about roads you think about the uh, cell phone towers bridges. right bridges you think about the real the literal connective tissue of the world but you know we should also be thinking about infrastructures like all of the uh the hidden stuff that uh we don't really think about but that is just as important in structuring the way that we communicate i mean um sure to an extent right to an extent the cell phone towers are invisible because you or i are not constantly in front of cell phone towers, right? But there's also like a, uh, an even deeper level where it's like the standards or the laws or the rules or the regulations that determine how one device talks to another device are just as important in terms of infrastructure. The thing, the standards are what determine how a device like your phone, which is not the same as a device that powers a cell phone tower, which is not the same as a device that powers some cloud server, which is not the same as a device inside of a database, all are able to communicate with each other, right? And you would think that the standard is something that is going to be the best and most efficient way for them to communicate to each other so that, you know, maybe data isn't lost or so that there's as minimal leakage as possible so that it's secure or whatnot. Uh, but in reality, it's just uh, in the interest of individual points of that supply chain or of a conglomerates trying to get into it. And that is what we want to talk about, about how these, this process of arriving at standards is, is becoming, or, and, and, and by proxy, this process of constructing the infrastructure for the digital economy um, and the digital world, right? Whether it's in an attempt to unify it, or an attempt to cut off parts of it from spreading to the rest of the world, how this is becoming like an intensely political battle in a way that uh, is not being appreciated enough and uh, has huge consequences for all of us. Absolutely, because uh, we, we got to think about, we got to think in terms of systems, right? Mm -hmm. Like we talk a lot about technology and we talk a lot about individual devices, but these things are useless if they can't interact with each other. And it's not even just like, you know, my Bluetooth headphones that I buy from wherever can interact with, you know, my speakers or my laptop or whatever, right? Like these things can talk to each other. I mean, that is a, that is a standard, right? That those protocols, but also it's, 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 it's like mundane things. It's every single thing from like, you know, the the thickness of a credit card is a highly standardized thing, right? Because that credit card needs to fit into an ATM machine or, or it needs to fit into a payment machine, right? It needs to be able to talk to these things. So, I mean, the thing, you know, credit cards are high like that. That's a standard that's been set. Uh, you know, you, you got standards for everything, right? Like, uh, you, you got standards for, for, you know, cooking pasta, right. Mm -hmm. Which is, which is really weird to think about that. It's like, you know, 
why why does it say eight minutes on every single right. <laughs> uh, piece, you know every single pasta package you pick pick up because that's a standard that's been set this pasta needs to cook in eight minutes uh you know or 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 the standard for you know what counts as a drink right the the pour of a glass a, a wine glass or a beer or a shot that's all highly standardized um and we got a can check going on right now yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh you know a, a so, little corona bag. <laughs> but these but these standards aren't just come you know, they're not just haphazard in this way that, you know, people just kind of like, you know, come to this consensus. Oh, I I, I like the size of that credit card. All right, that's not, you know, that's what I'm gonna do for my credit card or whatever. It's like, no, there there's an there are organizations that hold their whole job is to uh set these kinds of standards and and the big one is the uh, international organization for standardization or the iso um which is you know the acronym i think is for the french name because it's it's a it's it you know it's headquartered in geneva just like you know all these other transnational institutions like the wto or you know uh the international telecom union uh the itu right like they're all set in geneva the un um, and this is what uh, you know. Keller Easterly has a Easterly has a great name for it. You know, she calls the ISO um, the quintessential parliament of extra statecraft. Right. This this is the legislative body for extra statecraft. Um, or you know what she what she also um, talks about as you know the the ISO is regarded by some as no less than the beginnings of a world state. Um, because the ISO formats the performance and calibration of many components components of infrastructure space at every scale, from the microscopic to the gigantic. So, you know, this it's really it's really weird and really interesting because this is that like shadow state, right? This is that this is the the that world cabal that's like pulling strings behind the scene um, to uh, that reaches into every single aspect of our lives uh, to to shape it in ways that are really meaningful, but ways that we are just like oftentimes completely unaware of even the existence um, of this organization or it's like millions of standards that are directed at every single thing. Right. You know, and I think people when also thinking about standards and standardization, you know, a helpful thing I know for me has been thinking about the fact that, you know, what it, how does, how does tech innovation, tech develop or development of technology occur in our, you know, uh, world system? In, in reality, we would like to think it's a, it's, it's some um, entrepreneurial initiative where, you know, the best ideas win, but in reality, right, it's ideas and developments that are the one, you know, as one part, the most connected either to capital or to regulators or to political processes, right? Uh, but um, two, also, it's not enough to just be connected to those things. You need to own the ideas, right? Because in our system, ideas are not just simply like free-floating things that you can have unchallenged, right? You have to literally own the idea through patent law. You have to literally... Um, you own either the products of them or you either have to own like some 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 method of pro- uh, producing them or some process and keep that as a trade secret you know there like there there are ways in which you need to quite literally own the both the idea and the way of 
replicating or producing it. And often that stuff is not owned by any individual. It's owned by conglomerates and these companies, right? And when you zoom out, what you end up seeing is a world where technological development and competition and, and cooperation to some extent is largely determined by what sectors and what parts of the world um, hold certain patents that are labeled standards essential, right? That are labeled as um, ideas that are necessary for one device to talk to another, for one and 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 as a result necessary for the development of a world system because you know when when she talks about that world state what you know the the idea behind the standards is is not simply just so that these devices can talk to each other right but it's also because when devices are all talking to each other they're locking in a reality they're locking in a certain path of development a path of uh, solving, addressing, conceptualizing problems, right? And so standardization not only becomes a way for us to share the same language, but to to um, you know in the in to you know think of like the the linguistic theory of Waldorf, where your language, the language that you put forward, constructs the limitations in one way or another of your world, right? And the standards that mm -hmm. you put forward construct the limitations of the way in which you engage that world, right? The stand if we share a, a certain set of standards, they're coming from a certain set of ideas about how devices should talk to each other. Uh, what devices should do individually, what they should do as a system, what they should do uh, or in the ways in which a person can interface with that system and when and where they are allowed to and not allowed to, right? And that has a huge effect on um, the way that technology develops in a way that is as important and in some cases maybe more important than what individuals say we can do with technology, right? Power is right there in the name, mm -hmm. right? Standards, because mm -hmm. it's you know it, it's the norms. It's it becomes these rules, and it becomes really natural, right? Like when something becomes standardized, you no longer think about it by design, and so it just becomes this kind of naturalized part of the world. Uh, and and there's a lot of power in being able to be the one who can set that standard, which is then adopted, um, whether you know by choice or by force, uh, by everybody. And you know, it makes me think of this really famous quote from um, Werner von Simmons, um, who you know, 19th century German industrialist who put his name to the Simmons uh, Corporation, which is just a, you know this massive conglomerate of uh, hardware and software, um, you know, especially in terms of like heavy capital, right? Simmons is like everywhere, but he, uh, he, he said, you know, he who owns, uh, he who owns the standards owns the market. So they're already, you know, very early in industrial capitalism, there was this recognition that if you can own the standards, then you can own everybody uh, in the market who must use your standards, right? Who must, uh, you know, kind of make this reference back to you. And, and, and these standards aren't just set in neutral ways, right? They're, 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 they have interest baked into them. They have a vision of uh, how the world should be put, the, you know, what reality ought to look like baked into them. And so there, there's a massive, you know, massive battles over standardization, and it's not just, you know, the these 
kind of you know world state or parliament of extra statecraft like the ISO, uh, which you know has spent a lot of time uh, not only creating these standards but then propagating them, right? Trying to get because all these standards are voluntary, right? No one's no one's forcing you. The ISO doesn't have a, a military arm yet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's forcing you to adopt its standards. So instead, it does a lot of work. Um, for like quality assurance and compliance, uh, you know, it's a mark of quality to have the ISO 9000, um, you know, seal of approval. Uh, and so there's this kind of aspect of people want to, you know, co companies adopt these standards because it allows them to play in the market. And the ISO uh, has this kind of at least you know, quality of being a neutral transnational organization, right? It has representation from, um, a, you know, largely Western, um, but not not so much anymore. Um, and we'll get into this. Um, but you know, it has like the UN. It has represent. It has like a permanent council of uh, six. Uh, countries, you know, which are like France and, you know, <laughs> the UK and the yeah. US, right? Germany, right? Like, coincidence. like the, the, the usual suspects, <laughs> the usual suspects. Um, but so it operates like this kind of UN mm -hmm. for standards. But at the same time, and what, what brought my attention to wanting to do this week's episode on standards um, is a really great... Uh, and long analysis in the FT last week. Um, you know, shout out to the FT. Uh, this is just a little bit of you know, a little plug that you know, TMK is is slowly pivoting to just being an FT based podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, because as I as I tweeted out last week, I found out that through my university, I now have access to a free premium account mm -hmm. on FT, which is a literally sixty dollar a month value. Which also <laughs> also, I mean, we one day we will talk about how many. Uh, people have FT uh, subscriptions that I've seen on my timeline and never once talked about how expensive it was. Like every month I rediscover that FT costs $60 a month and I look a little differently <laughs> at the people who have it already uh, <laughs> because no one tells me this shit. Everyone will be sharing paywall articles uh, from the FT being like, oh, great analysis as always. And then I go and what do I find out? I have to pay $60. You know, one time... They, I think Loki, the, uh, they were like, oh, you can't afford, like, I tried to cancel subscription because I got a, you know, trial and then it went back to the full price. And I was like, I can't afford this. I'm a student at the time. And they're like, oh, you can't afford it. Hmm. I was like, what are you, what are you, are you roasting me for not being able to afford your expensive fucking newspaper? <laughs> Uh. <laughs> this gets back to another idea that we've had that there should be a reverse means test for being a journalist. <laughs> yeah. Like if, if your familial wealth is above a certain limit, you don't get to be a journalist. Yeah. That job is I'm I'm sorry, that job is off limits to you. There's some people in the field, you know, maybe we'll say names at some later point, who's like who fam whose families are like you know uh the wealthiest families in their states or in the country at times and you know you got to wonder um especially when they cover certain fields that are like really at the forefront of like political issues like what's going on there like i don't know i mean i i know some people who are like incredibly wealthy 
who are socialists, for example, right? And they have great politics. And, you know, like, I, I will always trust a rich socialist over, like, a rich capitalist. But, you know, if, like, you uh, if you come from, like, one, you, if you're a literal, like, top 0.1%, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I can, I can trust your politics no matter what they are, you know? The, the, the only way I trust you and the only way you'll get redemption from this podcast is if you if you act like Friedrich Engels and you just bankroll. Yeah, right. you, know? you just bankroll a Marx, you know, to do... Bankroll lo- TMK. I love, I love uh, the Prussian police reports on Marx where it's like he spent uh, 24 hours on the couch and then uh, slept on the floor and then stayed up all night for two days to write something that was due and then went to sleep again for the next day and it's like yeah that's good that's that's exactly what we want from the guy who, who who's uh at the center of um one strain of leftism's uh critique of capitalism that's great <laughs> sorry marx you canceled right <laughs> you, you were you were friends with a wealthy industrialist family we were singularly funded by one uh by one wealthy dude <laughs> Which I mean, that's a conflict of interest right there. It's really oh, yeah. making me question. Jeremy's the telling whole us capital. too. He's got he's got a Marx beard going on too. I think I think so. Could we could we one day you know uh, we'll get an, a German accent going in a repertoire and we'll do like a good bit where Marx comes on. <laughs> where like you're, we're trying to explain to Marx what like Palantir is, you know? Oh my God, <laughs> Marx twenty twenty. <laughs> Um, is this thing you have you call the technology of the computer (laughs) (laughs) I am so I am so perplexed by this you have to explain this to me Mm -mm, mm -mm. very carefully Marx Marx would not be perplexed by this he'd look at it and be like man i talked about the general intellect in my fragment on this <laughs> oh yeah yeah okay yeah. True. <laughs> yeah. but was this marx is very high on the marijuana right now <laughs> <laughs> now that that's that's that that's that hedonism i expect from carl oh yeah <laughs> but uh so back to Oh, uh, what what brought FT? So back to FT. What what brought us to standards and wanting to talk about standards this week is a really long analysis in um, the FT last week on. Uh, it's titled "From AI to Facial Recognition: How China Is Setting the Rules in New Tech." Mm. Um, but what it really is, and it's all it's part of this weird series that they're doing called the New Cold War, yeah. which has actually had some pretty interesting analysis of like the way that like the U.S. Uh, the U.S. hegemonic economy and the the new kind of Chinese hegemon uh, hegemonic economy are are decoupling mm-hmm. um, in really interesting and and meaningful ways, and so. But this analysis is all about this like battle going on right now over who gets to st- set the standards. Um, for technologies like facial recognition, AI, you know, five G, you know, these kind of next gen emerging technologies that are that don't have clear standards set, you know, even something like the the Internet of Things, and especially the industrial Internet of Things, um, th- there's a massive battle going on between, you know, it's like. Simmons, IBM, Cisco, right? Even these like these these Western countries are all fighting over who gets to set the standards for the industrial IoT, um, and and so you've got this 
yeah, this what they're calling a new Cold War happening uh, between China is like really coming into its own um, in terms of like starting to not only gain power but throwing that weight around in terms of like uh, you know they they're they're really leaning into wanting to set standards for these emerging technologies and and so what that you know what that means is that you know do you do you end up with um, countries that have you know kind of American-based standards and countries that have Chinese-based standards. So you see a, the digital economy not only like decoupling, but going off in like divergent pathways, um, at, you know, according to who gets to set standards and enforce those standards. Yeah, you know, and I think it is, um, you know, a lot of reporting on China falls into um, this uh, Orientalist trap or. What was I forgot the dude who called it the Thucydides trap? You know the idea that a lesser power and a greater power come into conflict, but it falls immediately into this narrative about um how you know these two these two powers are just inevitably fated to fight because of historical trends, and I think the FT series, you know, even if there are some um points in individual pieces where we might be like mm, you know like they're they're, <laughs> they're overlooking something um they do touch on the fact that like this is a geopolitical battle on both sides right the united states and china understand that they have mutually exclusive visions of what the world should be in terms of the relations that people should have with uh, the state, the relations that the state should have with the larger economy, the way that technology should be deployed, the way that standards should regulate the way in which certain technologies thrive and others are so, um, you know, suppressed. And I think this series does a good job of uh, making clear that you know this geopolitical struggle, um, specifically in the tech world, has a lot of really complex moving parts. You know, the 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 struggle to take control of the the digital world is not simply company which company, you know, is going to prevail, how WeChat is going to penetrate Europe, how Facebook is going to penetrate China. It's also like like you said about whether or not a company like Huawei is going to be allowed to continue being as integral to mobile communications networks as it is right now, whether Qualcomm, you know, is ever going to be able to rival it, uh, whether the whether workers at these companies should be allowed to review uh, research that's being done um, in general academia or. Uh, or not, or whether, or whether, um, where and 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 the ways in which we're going to be viewing each action, each individual associated with this vast network as part of some proxy war, as part of some uh, state-sponsored apparatus, as part of like some um, attempt to usurp the the dominance of the other, and this is going to have real effect. I mean, to to one extent, I think. Um, you know, shout out to uh, Tech Won't Save Us. They had an interview uh, the other day with an organizer who talks really good about how you know this idea of the internet. And this is also something that Evgeny Mor you know Morozov talks about a bunch too. The, the idea of a single unified internet does not really exist, right? Because in reality, there are different types of internet experiences and different type of infrastructures and different types of databases all across the digital world based on where you live, right? What matters, that's, and that I think is even more so to the point of why 
the standards thing matters because uh, all the actors involved, the United States, the EU, the uh, China, um, are interested in consolidating a sort of standards um, system that they've propagated in their own country overseas so that their market shares and their companies become dominant overseas, right? I, you know, there's this really interesting part in the FT articles, uh, in the FT series where um, they talked about how it was an unfair competitive advantage for uh, Chinese firms to come into the United States, take the NIST test on facial recognition, score highly on the accuracy of their facial recognition test, uh, to a software, and then use that to sell their software outside of the United States because it was banned in the United States. And on the one hand, you get what they're saying there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and hold on. So, so for those who don't know, NIST is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, which is a, a, a kind of, you know, the U.S.'s standards agency. It's part of mm -hmm. the Department of Commerce. Right, and they have a test that basically determines how well your software is able to overcome bias in its data sets on uh, facial recognition, right? And so here the question then becomes, is it, should China be allowed to use our test to legitimize its own software when it's an authoritarian regime, right? But I think also uh, when we step back, we should also be asking, one, facial recognition is itself an authoritarian technology, right? And no one should be using it. So that sort of comparison ends up becoming a jingoistic one when people in Congress smart legislation to ban facial recognition tests for China, right? But two, also, I think, you know, as you, you talked about LinkedIn Weiner earlier, he has, a, he has an essay um, that is also mentioned in one of the readings that we have um, about um, about the difference between democratic and authoritarian techniques, right? And this, you know, facial recognition being debated about whether or not an authoritarian should use it or not eliminates a core point, which is that facial recognition is an authoritarian technique, right? And because it is allowed to, to persist, right? Because we are having a debate about how to standardize facial recognition, we're really just having a debate about how to standardize authoritarian techniques inside of uh, democratic systems. Yeah, and, and whose interests get to uh, right. direct that authoritarian technology. And, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, in, in many ways, their framing of it being a new Cold War is, is accurate because there's so much of this red scare uh, and yellow peril uh, rhetoric going on as well where it's uh, on one hand i the 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 problematic aspect um is that it's being framed as china uh kind of imposing in the world of standards right because and i mean they are in, in terms of like they they're gaining really powerful positions and representation in these standard setting organizations. So, you know, just a, a quick rundown is that the, the current Secretary General of the uh, International Telecommunication Union, which is the UN's telecom agency, um, is now a former Chinese government official. Um, and it's a, it's a Chinese government official who's, a, who's very patriotic. Um, and, and while he's meant to have this kind of, uh, you know, really neutral, um, non-interest, non-interested uh, approach to these uh, tel telecom uh, standards and issues. Uh, he's also very vocally a proponent of 
the Chinese market and the kind of growth of the Chinese right. economy. So, you know, that that's causing some people a little bit of, uh, you know, worry as well. But, but in addition to that, um, in 2008, China became the sixth permanent member of the ISO's council. Um, you know, and then a few years after that, I think in 2013, um, it became a permanent member of its technical management board. So it has these like executive positions um, in these these organizations. And now, and uh, you know, in 2015, so a couple years after that, um, the ISO got its first Chinese president, who is a former steel industry executive. Um, and so, you know, in so in addition to a, a number of other leadership positions and un- other industry specific standards organizations, so. What that shows is that China recognizes that, you know, not only are they growing really powerful in terms of just as a trade block, but also growing really powerful in terms of their technology sector, um, their industry, right? And growing powerful in this way that's, that's rivaling and in some ways uh, surpassing, you know, you mentioned Huawei and, you know, uh, the, the kind of core infrastructure of 5G as well as just other telecom, uh, you know, chips and, and hardware um you know they're they're surpassing this uh, hegemony that was largely held by the U.S. Um, with the EU, kind of always, uh, you know, looking for a way to exert some kind of power. Right? It's not the EU has never been a full-on, uh, you know, superpower in terms of these standards. But there is something that that was called the Brussels effect, um, which was the ability of uh, the EU to set rules on like cars, uh, on, on chemicals, on food, um, that have been adopted around the world. Uh, and, and now, you know, the FT and, and kind of experts and, and watchers of this, this area are looking at what's being called a, a Beijing effect. Um, whereas this, you know, now, you know, China is, is, uh, kind of being able to set the default um, in, in large part, set the default because you know through its like Belt and Road Initiative, which is this ma- you know massive exporting and kind of basically creating its own its own block of states or, or you know of countries um, in which it is the hegemonic political and economic force, um, largely in places like uh, Africa, um, you know, in South America, right, in the, these kind of BRICS. Uh, you know, countries, you know, um, and so you see this, this kind of Beijing effect that you know, called um, happening as well. We're at the point as these pieces kind of talk about of where it may be that we have, you know, we've had different internets, but it may be that the standards render um, interoperability in, uh, impractical, right? And that large sections of markets across the world are no longer really able to communicate with each other. And I, you know, on the one hand, you know, I think a good example they talk about is, for example, smart cities, right? You know, China in of itself and its tech sector has been trying to export technology um, to do smart city projects or safe city projects with Chinese companies, right? And so the you know the hesitation with U.S. corporations has been on the grounds of the idea that 
this is an authoritarian regime and the technology is authoritarian. As you've talked about in your book and we've talked about on the show, there are a host of other concerns we should have about smart city projects and smart tech in general, right? Which would lead us to then look at the whole entire thing as a competition between two powers who are interested in advancing a problematic project because it yields huge benefits to them, right? It doesn't matter whether China or the United States does I mean, well, it matters in the sense of who does it because the benefits it yields to their central administrative state are immense, right? And they'll just... Yeah, but they don't question the fundamental underlying nature of, you know, smart cities or safe cities of this kind of like urban surveillance and, you know, e-government and and stuff like that. It, It is ultimately for them, uh, all about who gets, who gets to own. Right that that movement not not that the movement itself is problematic right right the question ends up being who gets to which country and which block of countries get to dominate the way in which smart city and smart tech develops which if you then analyze it further is really a question about which set of countries police departments military uh, sectors and small uh, of uh, of contractors are going to be allowed to invest the most money reap the most benefits and push the direction of where the technology is going to develop. And, you know, at the end of the day, whether you decide it's going to be China or the United States, I feel like the real of someone who's really standing back should say that no one's that we should not have our global, uh, you know, digital economy decided on um, or direction of its development decided by uh, military uh departments by police departments and by like a small group of uh contractors who are grifting uh both and yet you know that's what we get no matter who it, it it ends up being right right and and the reason why you know um the smart city is such a big smart slash safe city. You know, the, the way they differentiate this is smart city is about having like smarter governance, whereas safe city is about having like smarter surveillance and policing. Um, and the, you know, as we, as, as good listeners of TMK know, these two things are inseparable and come together, no matter how you might try to separate them, you know, in terms of the vernacular. But, uh, you know, one reason why smart cities are, 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 such a big part of the Belt and Road Initiative, which again is this massive, like, you know, it's it's kind of as Xi Jinping's oh, massive uh, overseas infrastructure investment strategy. Um, but it's, it's such a big issue in large part because the, the technologies that make up the smart city, like, uh, you know, big data analysis, facial recognition, 5G, um, AI, all of these are areas where the standards are still up for grabs. So if you can, um, you know, unilaterally through uh, rolling out, you know, these, these, this smart city in a box kind of package, uh, that's a way of setting the standards in practice, um, because you, you don't set the standards and then roll out the technology. You roll out the technology and the standards become the default because that technology is already in use. Right. <clears throat> you know, and um, I think a good example is this is like, you know, for example, with the Chinese government's to think first of the Chinese government's plan to do its own standards master system, right? Uh, China standards 2035, right? The idea there is you want 
what they what the FTA uh, will call a military civil infusion or fusion, right? Civilian research bolstering technological capabilities of the PLA, right? And that Xi Jinping is going to be pushing this sort of like dual use or dual power, <laughs> you know, however you want to talk about it. It um. Anything from big data, right, data extraction, uh, the supply chain for uh, you know high tech or high or advanced tech uh, telecommunications and technology, five G, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, whatever, right. But also, you know, this this uh, this civil military confusion is uh, fusion is is uh, causing worry in commentators, right. But you literally have to go uh, forty years back into the past. In fact, we've talked about it in our surveillance capitalism essay to the advent to the end of the uh, World War Two, where the military decided that it would need to have its own military fusion. Uh, and what was the reason for it? The reason for it was that they would need to create a really sophisticated surplus recycling mechanism, which is a way for them to ensure that you know surpluses that emerge from trade. Or recycled and redistributed to the population in, in a way that keeps social uh, order stable and also redistributed to private and public partners in a way that uh, pushes them to, inv- to develop new technologies, right? Or to give the technologies that they developed over to uh, the public sector to then do more research on or to give the public uh, sector's own research into the private hands for them to develop a commodity on that they could then be sold to the public and generate even more consumption, right? Like the mm-hmm. this military civil confusion that uh, is pointed out as a as a great danger by the Chinese government is also like uh, something that was done by the United States to ensure that its hegemonic influence would sustain itself, right? As mm-hmm. and in the post war uh, period before financialization ruined it. And I think it's important to think about how or to ask yourself when you're looking at uh, commentators being concerned about something China is doing to ask whether the United States is doing has done it, not simply to like, you know, excuse it or one way or the other, because I wouldn't, you know, if I were alive at the time when the United States was planning its hegemony, I would oppose it, of course, because I think it was a, you know, a disaster for the world. But I also think that, you know, any any country's hegemonic influence would be a disaster. And I think that if you if you really ask yourself what these people are worried about, it is really the supplanting of United States hegemony, possibly forever, with like a hegemonic influence in China that mirrors what the United States does did but also does not have some of the tensions that it did right because because China is also not doing this at the advent of a of a World War Two, which destroyed all the industrial centers in the world and created an unnatural situation where a country outside of the world continent, outside of the world island, right outside of Eurasia, was able to outproduce, outspend, out uh, maneuver every single power on there where all the most of the resources in the population is. What you end up having now with China is more or less what these geopolitical strategists would call the natural state of things where someone in the heartland, right, what they'll call the heartland or what they'll call the world island, where the most of the population, most of the resources and most of the land is, is organizing a network, organizing standards, organizing relationships, political coalitions that are going to ensure uh, a permanent, oh, first a return to what they might call the natural state of things, but also a permanent bulwark to 
uh, the United States and its its coalition returning to that post-war unnatural hegemony. Absolutely. Right? And I think that's that's really that's really important here. You have to you always have to remember that United States hegemony, as impressive as it was, as powerful as it was, is an unnatural development in, in history. And that and the saying it's unnatural doesn't mean that it, you know, it doesn't it's not like a prescriptivist thing. It means like even the planners of it at the time said we will have to do a lot of shit to attain it. And to preserve it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of work still is done to this day to maintain it. And now they're feeling like they're on the defensive. And and I mean, mm -hmm. we, we could just go, we could go so far in our analysis if we just had symmetry, right? If we, right. if we just had symmetry in our, in our methods and targets of analysis, because you see such an asymmetry happening in just the 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 really kind of insidious and I, I I think they're not even fully aware of this framing right in terms of like like framing uh you know China's rise in in these kind of standard you know this geopolitical war over standards um, as something that is new as an imposition as something to worry about. Because what's un, what's what's unsaid there, but what's intimated at is that it's it's a conflict against something else, right? Against the U.S.'s uh, hegemonic stance in in setting these standards and making the rules of reality, um, and but but we can see that they you, the you know people in power in the U.S. are are very much aware um, that they are fighting an offense. Um, against this, uh, and and they are trying to preserve this hegemonic way, and and you can see it in even just the language they use. So, for example, um, you know, bipartisan legislation was recently introduced uh, in Congress um, through an act called the Ensuring American Leadership Over International Standards Act, uh, which which is. You know, this was introduced in June, and it's it's meant to be a commission to study um, China's influence on the setting of standard of global technology standards. I mean, right there, right, ensuring American leadership <laughs> over international standards. Um, so the you know, and you can also see it in terms of uh, uh, you know Madeleine Albright, who's the former Secretary of State, you know, describing China as quote the world's leading pioneer of what what we call techno-authoritarianism. Um, mm -hmm. You can see it with, you know, Mark Warner, who's the Democratic vice chair of the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, you know, talking about how over the last, quote, over the last 10 to 15 years, the U.S. leadership role has eroded and our leverage to establish standards and protocols reflecting our values has diminished. Uh, as a result, others, but mostly China, have stepped into the void to advance standards and values that advantage the Chinese Communist Party. So they, they, you know, and he, he later goes on to talk about how, you know, con quote, Communist Party leaders are developing a model of technological governance that would make Orwell blush. You know, so, so mm -hmm. they use this, this really, uh, really trite and cliche, uh, you know, kind of red scare language. I mean, it's language straight out of uh, a different time, right? I mean, just, just find and replace China with Soviet Union. And, you know, this could just be McCarthy saying the same exact thing. Um, but what's really interesting is that they, they acknowledge that these standards 
are about um, advancing the values um, of a state, of a society. But what they they're they're trying to set up this this really bogus uh, binary between democracy versus authoritarianism as well, right? Do we want democratic techniques, as uh, Lewis Mumford and Langdon Winner would call it, or do we want authoritarian techniques? But it's fucking bullshit that the, you know that this is this is this is this is the you know Iraq War version of spreading democracy and freedom, right? But but trying to do mm-hmm. so through these highly bureaucratic means of of standards when we should look at it with the same exact skepticism that we looked at that language um, being talked about in terms of, of the Middle East, right? This, they, they don't want to uh, maintain, quote, leadership over these inter- global technology standards um, as a way to spread democracy and spread freedom. They want to do it as a way to spread their interest, to bake in of the American interest, the national interest, whatever that means, into uh, you know not not only a, an oil-producing uh, country, but into uh, how our technologies talk to each other, into the thickness of a credit card, right? Into these these things that are the material basis of reality. And, and you know, it's not going to it's not going to get. You know, really any better, I think, in the sense that this uh, geopolitical struggle, this uh, economic battle over market share, over uh, trade secrets, over um, assets, over supply chains, is only really going to get worse because, as we've talked about before, there is really only one sector of this economy that is... Uh, producing returns and it's tech right um, and it's and tech is not producing returns because it is the most economically dynamic uh, stupendous innovative sector of the economy it's producing returns because of how intensely speculative um, it's daily functioning is the sector is and how large the bubbles are right The reason why tech is the most um, dazzling sector of the economy is because we have zero interest uh, rates policy in most of the world or negative interest rates in some some parts of the world. And because uh, bonds are doing shit or um, doing so at such a rate that are allowing these tech companies to borrow unimaginable billions of dollars, right, to build up a system or to build up infrastructure to build up systems that would take a lot of money and a lot I mean and a lot of real assets I mean like one, another way to think about it is this you know we're fighting these battles over standards we're fighting these battles over the future of the digital economy and the infrastructure that's going to build it and a lot of and in real life infrastructure needs to be built in a lot of cases at a loss if you're really interested in providing it as a public service right and there are a bolt there are a multitude of ways we could have done this for the digital economy we could have done this as a public service where we're building it at a loss on the books but in reality we're you know using it as a way for individuals to take more control of how resources are allocated in their communities of how services are provided to one another and and uh how how um they're able to relate how they're able to move how they're able to uh, you know exist or or live their daily lives we could have done that 
and in and that would have been fine another option is to operate all these things at a loss that is funded by taxpayers by those same people and and privatize all of the benefits from it right so you have these massive complex infrastructures for getting goods and services that you have little to no say over right you have to go to a marketplace constructed by some place even how you get there is constructed by Amazon, by Google, uh, by Blue Cross Blue Shield, right? Um, by all these play, uh, all these actors who are spending your money or your tax dollars in one way or another to construct a more incenti uh, incentivized way for you to spend more of your money in their little fiefdom. And, you know, there's a huge, there's a stark contrast between the visions that we've entertained and, and pursued, right? The, the tech sector ends up becoming so dazzling and attractive to investors because of how thoroughly they've rejected the former plan of public ownership, public decision-making, public control, right? They have every assurance that this system, which undergrids every aspect of your life, is going to be kept in private hands. And as a result, it's going to continue to expand it's going to continue to grow. You're going to continue to grow your dependence on it, and they're going to continue to be able to rely on it as a return in a way that exceeds that you would expect from bonds, even though the, even though central banks from multiple countries are consistently buying them, uh, exceeding that that you would get from other sectors of the economy, which are usually consistent you know, places to park your money or your capital, right? Tech ends up being consistent for investors because it will – because – no regulatory authority, no country, no nation state, no international regulatory authority has decided we're going to stop them from hollowing out daily life and public goods and services for their own profit. Mm. Right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, have, I have daydreams of capital control. I sit under the tree with the sunshine oh you know, on my skin, just dreaming of capital controls. Could you imagine? And, 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 you know, understanding technology as a crucial form of capital, data as a crucial form of capital, just being, oh, ooh, what if the people, <laughs> what if the people controlled that? Mm, mm. So there was, um, Chomsky talks a lot I remember uh, about or used to talk a lot about how, you know, South Korea, they had uh, the death penalty for uh, capital flight. And honestly, you know, I, I do not support the death penalty, but we need I don't know, man, what the fuck is going to stop capital flight? Because uh, capital strikes are why we are in this fucking mess with VCs in California threatening to leave the state if they don't have it. Capital flight is uh, has allowed trade treaties to be structured in ways that veto social policies and allow them to veto future social policies, right? Whether it's NAFTA, whether it's the renegotiated uh, North, um, North American trade treaty, whether it was the proposed Trans-Pacific uh, treaty, whether it's the European uh, North American uh, trade treaty, all of this shit is a way for capital to be uh, as mobile and liberalized as possible at the expense of uh, labor. And that, in addition to all the fucked up ways we have planned this economy and its political economy, have resulted in uh, the uh, you know bubbles that when they burst are going to take down unimaginable amounts of people with them. Yeah, and you know, so the, the FT has been kind of tracing this 
geopolitical war over standards for a while. They had another mm-hmm. really good essay from uh, like June of 2019, and you know, I, I mean, just constant shout out to FT for 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 doing stuff, you know, for for covering issues that often go uncovered. Um, and in you know, while there's definitely problem, you know, problems with their coverage, they they provide a lot of great reporting and great fodder for you know us to then build mm-hmm. on because you know they they said in this essay from 2019 right quote uh, you know market dominance often works in alliance with a bureaucratic offensive and that i mean that just that's such a beautiful summary um because you know you talk about like the trade you know these trade treaties and this war over you know you know t- the technology sector right now is just a constant battle for monopoly you know by design you know one of the thought leaders of silicon valley peter till uh mm. has you know, talks talks yes <laughs> talks explicitly <laughs> about um, monopoly in his book zero to one right talks about monopoly as the goal right? right that that that's the only only rational goal of a company is to uh gain total dominance over its market share and and that's happening through these bureaucratic offenses through things like standards right setting the standards and the rules um but Standards, look, thinking about standards is also such a great way to dispel two myths that are just continuously ongoing when we talk about technology or capital T, capital E, the economy. Um, and, and that's that, uh, you know, it, there's, this, there's this myth that like, you know, technology is like the antimatter of politics or you know the market is antimatter of politics in the sense that like never the two can touch otherwise it'll you know cause this world historic explosion and suck everything into it but that's uh-huh. that's total bullshit i mean you know it's right there in the name where, you know we're given a political economy of technology but there's also we're given a technopolitics a, a technological political analysis because these things are are completely inseparable and standards are a great way to see that in action in a way that most people never actually see in action because it is so um, kind of behind the scenes but you know setting standards is deeply political it's just it's it's a political act and looking at this kind of geopolitical war really heightens that the fact that there is this real there's this political component to um, setting the rules and the protocols for how things talk to each other, how devices can um, be interoperable, how you create systems. Uh, and, and similarly, um, you know, it helps us to spell this myth of technological determinism that um, technology or the market progresses in only one way because that's the, the natural way, the best way, the only way possible. Um, and that's, of, of course, complete bullshit, but standards are a way to, in a, in a very material way, kind of make that feel like reality. And I'm thinking in particular 
um, of a of a quote from the historian Andrew Russell has this uh, great book called Open Standards and the Digital Age. Um, and in that book, he says, quote, through standardization, inventions become commonplace, novelties become mundane, and the local becomes universal. Standardization is a historical and therefore a contested process whose success depends upon the obfuscation of its founding conflicts and contingencies. Successful standards, if they are noticed at all, simply appear as authoritative, objective, uncontroversial, and natural. And that crystallizes so much in terms of the way that, you know, there's no such thing as a free market because markets depend upon states to set the rules of law to set the structures, right? They depend upon these this extra statecraft in terms of standards um, to you know how things talk to each other, how transactions happen. Uh, you know, they so you know, and sa- same with technology, right? I mean, there is no deterministic, no natural um, way that a technology exists. There's always this history of conflict and contingency. Which is, uh, you know, it, it's 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 brushed under the rug. It's hidden uh, because there is no historical viewpoint in mm-hmm. in so much analysis or reporting on this. Um, it goes back to what you were saying about the way that, like, the FT is reporting on, um, you know. China's imposition into global standards, it's like, well, if we went back, you know, 40, 50 years, uh, we could be seeing the same exact things happening with the U.S. We could be seeing these same exact conflicts and contingencies, which now feel like they're natural. They feel determined. Um, And so the only difference is we're witnessing a rising uh, hegemonic force doing that in real time so it only seems weird it only seems like an imposition um because we're witnessing we're witnessing it happen but you know fast forward 20 30 years in the future you know Mm -hmm. let's say china 2035 standards take off the belt and road initiative is a massive massive success and maybe you've got two different digital slash industrial blocks or maybe you've got one block and it's the chinese block uh you know and and just as uh uh you know the you got mark warner and madeline albright and all these you know uh, you, you know, politicians in the U.S. talking about how they have to ensure American leadership. You know, we'll we'll see the same exact thing happen in China. You know, if if mm-hmm. the 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 kind of Chinese offensive into standards happens, and so what that says is it goes back to what we were saying before. We we need we need symmetry, but mm-hmm. we also need to have that historical materialist viewpoint that keeps everything in context that understands these things as processes and not just a kind of linear development when when you get a when you get a narrative handed to you and it has uh explanations um prepackaged for you you should challenge it even if it's our own narrative you know i think like the best sort of way to understand these things is to constantly be asking questions and interrogating the authority of a source or or the idea that's being presented here because i think you know i think our analysis holds up pretty well and i think that when you really push against what's going on with the standards debate as you talked about you know you re- it it becomes very 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 clear right you know as russell talked about standards 
are supposed to be constituted in a way where you don't really question them. Even though the process of achieving that standard is an incredibly political, at times violent, and other times massively disruptive process, right? There was another um, you know, text we looked at, uh, Lawrence Bush's uh, Standards, Recipes for Reality. And, you know, there's um, one section, I think, that I, you know, the quote was, the power of established standards is that they structure our expectations because standards, like the world of nature, are seemingly supposed to be the way they are, right? They become natural in the sense that Russell talked about. They become indirect. They become anonymous forms of power and that, you know, by virtue of existing, they're authoritative and we don't really question who constructed them and who constituted them. But again, you know, things in the world do not exist as they are simply because they are. They exist because they're constructed in a certain way for us to consume in a way that we can understand, right? I mean, the way that we think, the way that we move in the world is not the natural state of affairs. All of this stuff is artificial and constructed for our own consumption, right? So for you to be able to use a device to talk to another device is an artificial thing that has to be achieved through some sort of process. And you should always be asking questions about what the process is that allows something to exist that you're using without questions. Like if you don't question something, you should, or if you realize there's something in a technical system you don't question, you should, that's the thing you should pay the most attention to immediately because that is the thing that the most amount of energy has gone into, into making appear seem natural, right? If you don't question uh, why it is that a certain system of, or language or or uh, or network is prioritized above all that is what you need to be looking at right and it and i think with all of these writings or all these readings the core thing that comes through is that look the state understands that technical systems are just as important to maintaining and preserving its influence and its power and its control over individuals, but also its self-preservation as any other system that it has influence over. And especially with technical systems, it needs to maintain uh, an appearance of impartiality and neutrality, right? And that is why so many of these Debates end up being just yellow, yellow peril, right? Because it, it, it's much easier to paint the enemy as like an existential threat or as a political competitor as an existential threat than to like elucidate this whole treatise on why your values are incompatible and why you need to side with the United States Central Administrative Program versus China. So, you know, it's much easier to say, they're attacking ours, the way that we're doing things, and ours is the natural way of doing things. Don't think about why we do this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's this Manchian viewpoint that it just, you know, it's always boiled down to democracy over authoritarianism, right? Which is, right. you know, anytime, uh, you know, almost anytime you see debates situated in that way, uh, you should raise questions, right? You should you should raise questions as to why it's being framed in that way, what democracy even means. You know, they take advantage of uh, an assumed, you know, an assumption of democracy is good, authoritarianism is bad, and so if one side is, you know, promoting democracy, um, then that must be the good side. Uh, and, and that kind of good versus evil, um, you know, binary way of framing it you know that that's 
that 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 is itself also really insidious and i, I like the, i like the way you describe standards as this kind of anonymous authority um and, and that's very much the case right and this gets back to what we kind of started the discussion and talking about you know something like the iso being the you know the 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 makings of a world state um you've got this kind of you know parliament of extra statecraft uh, in terms of uh, of how these kind of political battles are happening behind the scenes um and it also it makes me think as well about what wendy brown calls uh you know neoliberalism's stealth revolution you know, and 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 I, I like the way she frames this and talks about it um, because it it is a way in which our, our very language and our very uh, framings of of these issues become kind of neoliberal in their context or in their content uh, in, in a way that you know throws us off course without us even realizing that we had been thrown off course um and i'll you know quickly quote an, another you know piece from another short passage from uh, her book undoing the demos uh, where she says you know stakeholders replace interest groups or classes guidelines replace law facilitation replaces regulation standards and codes of conduct disseminated by a range of agencies and institutions replace overt policing and other forms of coercion what i will say to uh, wendy brown's point is that these things it's not a a one-to-one -one replacement these things that coexist um, but the but but now it's it's different fronts on the same battlefield, right? Because you still have uh, you still have law, but you also now have guidelines, right? You still have uh, agencies of policing and coercion, but you now also but you also at the same time have standards and codes of conduct. So it's not that these you know maybe the way that we talk about them. Uh, is replaced in terms of you know ooh, uh, I don't want to talk about policing you know ooh, that that's that that's a third rail right that's a touchy subject but if we talk about standards that sounds much nicer right it it sounds more authoritative and it sounds more expertise driven right it's it's the rule by experts and we all like experts right because they know things um, but but that's but you end up you have both existing at the same time so you have these different forms of governance and these different forms of power uh you know both acting on and shaping the world and you know we we don't even have to look at a, a critical theorist like wendy brown to see this all we have to do is look at the architects of neoliberalism who deeply understood this point Right. You look at some of um, you look at, at, at Friedrich Hayek, for example, you know, uh, you know a, a great proponent of this kind of Austrian economics, you know, an architect of neoliberalism, uh, you know, look at shout out to like Philip Murawski's work on the kind of history of um, the Montparnasse society and uh, on the origins of neoliberalism. But if you look at Friedrich Hayek's lesser known work uh, you know, his really academic work on things like uh, the rule of law, right? Like he had this three volume massive um, set, you know, this was his capital, 
I, I think in some ways he was quite explicit um, that this was his kind of response to this was the kind of Austrian economics version to Marx's capital. Um, and so you've got this this three volume set that he calls Law, Legislation and Liberty. And the first volume of this set is called Rules and Order. He was a huge proponent that the rule of law is necessary for markets to exist, that there's no such thing as a free market, but rather every market is made and every market is maintained. And it's done so through these rules and these standards and these enforced orders that then structure the ability for spontaneous order, as he calls it, to arise um, through this. This, you know, it, it, it allows things like price signals um, to, or, you know, spontaneously organize the the behaviors and the actions of uh, disparate groups and so on. You know, but but people focus on that idea of spontaneous order through the market without looking at what he spent maybe more of his life actually researching and writing about, which was what underlies that, what are the structures underlying that. Um, and, and you know, his point there is not just that the market is maintained through these rules and standards, um, but also that that is a crucial point of conflict and battle that, that, we need to, we in the sense that him and his comrades need to be the ones to set the rules, to make the law, to establish the standards. And, and that, was, uh, that was the real uh, mission. That was the real project that, you know, this neoliberalism stealth revolution, as Wendy Brown calls it, undertook. You know, I think we talked about in our last episode or maybe the one before that with Amazon, right? People understand privatization has a sort of negative, nasty veneer around it, right? But digitization doesn't, right? And the stealth revolution comes to us uh, in the way in which partly privatization is reconfigured as a way to optimize or to realize failed promises of the state, of the economy, of other sectors of society that should have yielded rights and material changes that we wanted. But also digitization is supposed to be like another chance for corporations to realize that, right? Except, and I think this is important, you know, tech companies are in one way or another regarded as different from companies, right? Because they use technology, right? And that 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 aspect of technology being why they're di they're different allows them to still do the same privatization project, but with technology. And the way to do privatization with technology is just the digital, right? So it's it it doesn't really fucking matter that they're still doing mergers and acquisitions. They're still doing. Uh, integration into your life of like these devices of rec of recording and measuring and standardizing everything to to use for their own gain right it doesn't really matter what matters is that they're doing it with ones and zeros and so for that fact and that fact alone it's better and it's different from what neoliberals have been doing even though it's identical right because again you know like as Wendy Brown talks about who 
you know, the stakeholders, for example, the stakeholders rhetoric, who is advancing the stakeholders record rhetoric today? It's, it's tech billionaires, it's tech companies, it's people like uh, Mark Benioff, you know, who are on the one hand advancing a stakeholder capitalism as the new way to turn capitalism, and on the other hand, firing, you know, a huge amount of their, uh, their workforce after record profits, right? Stakeholder capitalism. You know, who is it that is talking about guidelines instead of legal regulations. It's the tech companies who are talking about ways for self-regulation to become the norm, who are talking about ways in which tech companies have tools that exceed the state and they maybe they should be the ones who are who are managing things because it's not a law. If a tech company does it, it's a guideline, right? Who's talking about facilitation? Who's talking about standards? Who's talking about codes of conduct? It's the tech companies. These tech companies have become the arbiters and the public faces of the private cons- uh, consumption of society and social life. Yeah, you know, when, when you think about, you know, what does AI ethics mean? Oh, it's Google's, you know, principles on AI ethics, which, you know, it's their codes of conduct, right? Right. Uh, and the same thing when you think about something like facilitation versus, you know, deliberation, uh, what does that look like? Oh, that's, you know, that's Sidewalk Labs, you know, doing doing public facilitation um, in Toronto, right? Like that. that's, you know, it, you're exactly right. I mean, these are the people that are putting this is the sector that is you know really rising to the top in terms of putting this into action putting this kind of neoliberal framing um, into action which again goes a long way towards trying to uh, purge any kind of politics from um, what, what what they want to see is just pure technology when it all is obviously political, it, and it needs to be understood as such, and it needs to be understood. And uh, yeah, you know, I like that you kind of bring in, you know, Mark Benioff, who's the CEO of Salesforce, which is you know another big kind of infrastructure service. Um, you know, his idea of stakeholder capitalism, because you can see this kind of weird mapping onto, you know, if you look at uh, you know the the other volumes of Hayek's you know collected work on law legislation and liberty volume two is called the mirage of social justice <laughs> and what is that that's conscious capitalism capitalism right that's that's Mackey that's John Mackey that's Whole Foods baby that's that you know there's no social justice you just got conscious capitalism you know volume three is called the political order of a free people what is that? That's democracy, baby. You know, that that's what the political order of a free people is. And so, you know, none of this is new, right? It's all this process and it's all this and it's a long standing process uh, that, that you can just map on these historical um, precedents onto. And the, but, but it's this long standing and it's an ongoing political fight. And, and that's, you know, that brings us to, I think, uh, perhaps, you know, the key takeaway um, from this essay is not only to be aware of the power of standards and that this kind of extra statecraft is happening, but also that, you know, to um, quote another uh, scholar, James White, who uh, has been doing um, really great work on looking at the ISO standards for smart cities um, and the kind of 
political economy of that and the way in which cities are actually uptaking or not um, these standards uh, and, and, and doing so in a way that, you know, has largely been ignored as well by even academic scholarship, because again, it's, you know, it's this mundane, esoteric, arcane um, kind of field of study, you know, it doesn't seem exciting or sexy, you know, if you're even aware of it. Um, but, but his work is really great because what uh, one of his key takeaways is, you know, in this article that he wrote um, called "On the Difficulty of Agreeing Upon a Universal Logic for City Standards," and what he's what he's arguing is, quote, to assert that standards express a universal logic reinforces the very thing that makes them so powerful and appealing to cities. Revealing them as instruments of political persuasion undermines the authority on which they rest, and so. While, you know, while we're talking about the power of standards to kind of, you know, universalize a way of doing things, this, we also have to understand this as something that happens through conflict and through contingency um, and happens through conflict among experts, um, among political powers, among, among you know, rival um, hegemonic forces, right? That this is all about creating what you beautifully called anonymous authority, and so we can we can do so much whether we're talking about standards or technology or the market to just kind of crack them open and you know take you know uh, deny them this universality that they claim to have but instead reveal them to be these instruments of politics, these ways of trying to enact anonymous right. authority. You know, and I think then, and I think all of this should come as a way for people to stop thinking or to, you know, really ask themselves like when, like tech, I think, in one way or another, because of that tech element, gets cast as even if it is authoritarian or private form of power, it is an inherently progressive, inherently liberatory force, right? But when you really sit down and analyze the ways in which it just replicates previous forms of private power, in addition to the fact that the, the, the way in which it has its own um, its own regressive and authoritarian uh, you know, nature embedded inside of it, um, I think that technology... Uh, or maybe capitalist tech and capitalist techniques need to be regarded, you know, with hostility and and with a sort of um, you know uh, confrontational stance that we we may not have for other uh, companies and other sectors, but that we need to because uh, what's our experience with tech companies? What is our experience with Facebook uh, when it comes to uh, the degree to which it? distorts any of our individual lives in our political system. Uh, lies on top of lies on top of lies that are used to buy more time to integrate itself further into our political economy. What's our experience with Uber, with Lyft, with Twitter, with, with Snapchat, with you know uh, any of these uh, companies and institutions? Uh, none of them should be trusted specifically because they're tech companies. I think – I really do think that the, that the ways in which tech companies – are both uh, inherently able to corrupt and undermine uh, established institutions and norms and laws and regulations in society, as well as the ways that they're self-aware about their power, exceed that of 
uh, oil or tobacco or any other insidious industry that you want to think of where the literal purpose of the industry is to hurt as many people as possible in a way that is as profitable as possible without provoking regulatory backlash. I mean, like the it is not a coincidence that the most profitable industries or some of the most profitable industries in the world are ones that are just literally killing people, you know? Um and again, I don't think it's a coincidence that with technology, it purports to be one that is a savior, a liberatory force. Um, but in reality, it's just, uh, um, you know, chaining us to hell, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, just just to, you know, you know, talk, talk, talking about, you know, extremely wealthy uh, companies that are, are reeking unimaginable amounts of human misery uh what's up mm-hmm. amazon right. <laughs> you know so if if we just think about our episode from yeah a couple of weeks ago on on amazon's uh you know innovation slash domination ecosystem this is also we have to understand um amazon's sidewalk right their their kind of grand project to create this mesh network uh, you know, as also a battle of standards, right? Because the, the Amazon, Amazon is an infrastructure uh, company first and foremost, and through creating, you know, trying to create this sidewalk mesh network that you know creates, you know, the internet at the neighborhood scale, um, but at every neighborhood, it, it's an internet that is established by Amazon and it's a way of rolling out their standards for how things talk talk to each other what things are allowed to talk to each other um, and how they create these networks uh, that 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 that's also about trying to do standards and standardization through force through coercion right this is Amazon rolling out uh, you know the, this this system this ecosystem, getting everybody to adopt to it and whether they whether they know it or not play a part be nodes in this network um that then end up you know shutting out you know now now they they as we talked about a couple weeks ago right they become the intermediary right they become the owners of the standards um, by which networks are able to be created. They become the intermediary um, for every transaction and service um, in your life, right? This And this is also about them playing in that parliament of extra statecraft and trying to put their legislation forward, lobby for their view of, of the world, um, and write the recipes for reality, as Lawrence Bush mm-hmm. calls it. And we should take control of that shit ourselves. I mean, imagine imagine what sort of world, you know, <laughs> um, the world that we live in, you know, the capitalist realist world hellhole has many nice uh, gadgets, trinkets, um, services and goods within it. And, you know, um, it is really not hard to imagine uh, a, a world where uh, we can for one second, uh, use this technology to prioritize human well-being and welfare, right? I mean, what's the the primary goal of our economy in one way or another uh, is, what, like a sort of um, 
that your maximal your capacity for anyone to have as many goods as possible and as many services as possible is as cheap as a as as possible, right? And I think that you know, in some ways, I can understand why people might want that, but it just it, it has led us to a point where we're about to destroy the ecology of the ecological niche that we live in, and we've also probably permanently carved out or prevented multiple paths for technological development to ever develop you know i think uh, a lot about daniel soros so- soros soros i don't know how to pronounce it let's just say soros because it's fun to have uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, another exactly. um really uh one of the greatest books i've ever read is uh, a book by his called information technology and socialist construction and i mean uh the best way to describe it is like him trying to uh design a socialist economy with technology and not with like you know just like fancy gizmos but with using technical systems to solve as many social problems as possible and then whatever problems that can't be solved figure out solutions through political social economic processes that could they could be solved in and how to create institutions that lock those solutions in and ensure that you know things don't get disrupted and it's really a fascinating book because you know one of the one of the things I admire about it is optimism, right? This idea that even if capitalists like to insist that they've won the calculation debate, that which is a debate about whether or not you can plan an economy with prices or without prices, right? Capitalists like to insist, obviously, the price system works because look how successful the modern capitalist economy is, even though some of the largest retailers like Amazon or Walmart regularly violate the price system and mod- modify it to their own ends, right? Ignoring that. Yeah, I mean, just, right, I mean, just to, you know, just to, to sum, sum that up, right, like what, what, we, what we need to be striving to do, in the words of Dad Prez, is organize the wealth into a socialist economy, a way of life based off the common need. Like ants in a colony, organize the wealth into a socialist economy, a way of life based off the common needs. And all my comrades is ready, we just spreading the seed. Right. And it's, and it's, and it's his book, I think, that is, uh, was one of the first books I came across that really tries hard to think about how we can take the things that exist now and reformulate them. You know, he comes up with something that is, um, I think could be best described as like a central planning board. Um, and what it does is, you know, the, the, the problem he's trying to solve is social coordination, right? I think, you know, Morozov has a New Left Review essay where he kind of talks about his ideas a bit and near the end. And it's like, you know, he's trying to create a general catalog, a general catalog where it's like, you know, imagine an eclectic mix between Amazon and Google where people who produce things are working in something akin to guilds or worker councils. And they are listing the services and the goods that they're offering um, in a way that we might be familiar with if we use Apple's or Google's app stores, right? Then consumers, we have individual unique IDs that we use to register our needs during a period of time that's called the needs registration uh, period, right? 
at the beginning of each production style. You rank what you need, you specify the quantities for the next uh, cycle. Um, and even if we don't, even if we get things that are outside of our needs, right, you're still able to do that outside the needs registration, but you get some sort of bonus if you adhere strictly to your needs or the closer you are to not deviating from them, right? And in theory, this is supposed to construct a system where we're still using our technological infrastructure to produce. We're still meeting each other's needs. Um, we're encouraging each other to consume less. And in, and stuff that is cons uh, produced more than need be um, uh, can be used to redistribute those goods, right? Um, we can fine-tune production numbers based on constant themes uh, and patterns that are generated from the data that we've extracted over the past decade from people, in addition to new ways of generating data that would be consensual and that would be um, more uh, collective and more insightful than simply figuring out how to get you to do a specific thing or how to get an ad to you know match whatever your behavior you have it might be. And all of this to say that, like, you know, technology does not need to be subordinated to figuring out the best way to get an individual to do something. We can use technology to get communities to do something. We just need to really ask ourselves what it is that we want people in large numbers to do. Do we want people in large numbers to consume a good more? Do we want people in large numbers to uh, produce something more? Or do we want people in large numbers to not do something more? And I think if we ask this question outside of the confines of the market system, we can get interesting answers. We can get ways to figure out how to get people to live in cities without relying on cars, how to get people to live in cities with homes uh, that may be aside, or in places or in sizes that are at risk for certain disasters, or, or maybe to build communities where people work with each other, one another, and are willing to defend each other more uh, one or another, uh, in one way or another. I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which we can use technology to socially plan communities, economies, political systems. But instead, it is almost singularly used to advance the interests of the, the four or five tech giants that we have that drive economic development. And I think if people really sit down and think about it, they don't like that system, right? They'd rather use it to solve the problems they have now, and we don't have that. Create structures that support solidarity, that ensure um, a, a baseline of, of common need and welfare. Exactly. I mean, this is obviously a topic um, that uh, deserves a lot more attention, and, and we will, you know, Think of this as a teaser for a future episode where we really will dive into, you know, as well talk about the history of some of these experiments around like Cybersyn, um, you know, uh, with Allende in Chile, right? And, 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 and again, you know, talk about the kind of uh, violence of neoliberalism, you know, with Pinochet coming in and ripping out, you know, ripping apart this kind of, uh, you know, uh, socialist calculation experiment right like these are definitely things that we will talk about um in more depth in future episodes uh and i, I think that that's such a it's a it's a great way to sum up a really key point ed um in that you know in this I mean, while we're talking about standardization the point is not to be anti-standardization right it's rather because we do need we we need order in this way. We do need rules, and we need ways um, that you know systems can be created and talk to each other. We do need this kind of standardization, but instead, it's on one hand 
to uh, reveal uh, a standardization and standard setting and these battles as political instruments, as um, political fights, um, as you know, processes that are, are fraught with conflict and contingency. They are not just this anonymous authority uh, that they are set out to be. So on one hand, it's about politicizing standardization. And then the next step for that is to think about what what does a standard um, and what does standardization mean in a democratic sense? And not democratic in this American national interest, ensuring American leadership, blah, 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 that kind of democracy, but democracy in, uh, the, in a socialist sense, right? The democ- democratizing the economy, democratizing technology um, in this way that it, it represents the values and interest of a broader class of people and also serves their needs, right? That's what we mean by democracy. And that's definitely something we will dive a lot more into um, in, in episodes to come is what does the, what does true democratization in that socialist way look like? Um, so I think that's a, you know, I think that's a great way to wrap up this episode. Uh, and, and, you know, this is this has been your this machine kills for this week and you know when you're when you're out there in the world uh you know pay more attention to the material components of that world and the the recipes and the rules that construct that reality and think about how they might be different so that's tmk see ya